Jason Cordova, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Jonah. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, every episode of Roll to Metal, I mention your name, uh, but just in case people haven't been paying attention when I do, uh, who are you? Yeah, uh, so I'm Jason Cordova. I am the founder of an organization called The Gauntlet. The Gauntlet is um, really focused on like indie tabletop role-playing games. We have a podcast network of our own where we discuss those games uh, quite a lot. And um, we also have, we're a gaming community, so we like organize online games for people to play. And we've been doing that for years, even years before the pandemic, even when we all had to go to online play. And uh, we also have a publishing branch, which is where uh, Brindlewood Bay and some other games that we publish have come out of. Um, we we sort of started our publishing journey with a magazine called Codex, which is a sort of like an anthology magazine for like independent tabletop role-playing games. Uh, and from there, we started doing standalone games. So we started with a game called Hearts of Woolleen, then we moved to a game called Trophy, and uh, and now we're doing these mystery games, Brindlewood Bay and The Between, and we have a few games kind of in that same kind of like mystery horror line that we're working on as well. So yeah, the, I, I'm I'm the founder and organizer of The Gauntlet, and those are kind of the, the three big things we do, online games, podcasts, and publishing. So. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if that is of interest to any of the listeners, there's a ton of information on the gauntlet and assuming that you're listening to this because you like podcasts, uh, Jason, you've done a handful of interviews and I think just searching for your name in podcast aggregators, will find people, um, interviews and, and discussions where you're sort of going in depth with a lot of these issues. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I do a lot of talking about role-playing games. I'll, I'll sit here and answer questions all day if you got them. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess. So what I really want to talk about is mysteries. Uh, okay. But I, I'd like, I guess I'm, I'm curious about um, when you were starting the gauntlet, did you anticipate that you would become a sort of figure for <laughs> independent role-playing games? Um, no, uh, no, we, we started actually as a local group in Houston um, in around 2013, I had moved to Houston and I was looking for people to play these games with me that were, that didn't really have much of a following or a fan base. These were very niche role-playing games. And um, in Houston at that time, everybody was just playing um, like Pathfinder. Basically that was kind of the big game that everybody played at that time. And I had no interest in Pathfinder. And so I just started looking for groups that might be interested in playing these more niche, more story narrative focused games that I was interested in. And um, I actually stumbled on a G plus community called the gauntlet. It was inactive. There was nothing going on there, but it was in Houston. And I, and I just posted like, Hey, I'm really interested in playing these games. Does anybody want to play with me? And some people responded and, Basically, from there, we um, we just kept going. We kept like organizing local games, and we eventually would organize, you know, two or three game nights a week, and had we would have like four or five tables like per you know session, and it was uh, it was terrific. We got to play all of these games, and so what kind of eventually happened is we said, well, okay, well, we have a lot of thoughts and a lot of thinking about these independent tabletop role-playing games that, that, that at that time, very few people were talking about. And so we decided to do a podcast that was the gauntlet podcast. And, um, and that was sort of how like our little local group 
started to be like something more, I guess. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of how it all got started. I, I didn't say I, I mean, I didn't anticipate that it would like be that I would like be this like kind of quasi public figure when it comes to indie role-playing games, but, um, but I'm happy to be, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that people like my opinions on these things. So you know, it's, it's gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, between the podcasts and everything on the gauntlet, there's, there's a lot going on there. So yeah, I think, yeah. I think if anyone is, has found our podcast and wants to know more about the scene in general, the gauntlet is the place to go for more information. Uh, so I am a huge fan of mysteries in general when it comes to, to books or, uh, you know, films as I have a former life as a playwright and I approached every play as a mystery, whether it was or, or not. Okay. So I love talking about this. Um, and I guess for you, what makes a mystery a mystery? Like if you were going to just just try to describe what it is about a story that makes it a mystery, do you have? Yeah, that's it's yeah. a really interesting question, and I think it depends a lot on what medium that story is taking place in. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I would say that uh, you know, big picture, I think that any story can have mystery elements. Right? I mean. Um, lots of books, lots of TV shows, uh, lots of role-playing games for that matter, have like mystery as like a thing that happens in the game, but it doesn't mean that that's necessarily the focus. I think the, I think what makes it the focus is, well, I mean, I think like the, the principal characters should probably be principally engaged in the act of investigating a problem, right. And like gathering clues to, to solve that problem. I think, um, that's maybe like one way of looking at it. I think that maybe a more nuanced way of looking at it is in some sense, in a mystery story, you are playing a game with the creator of that story as the consumer, you're sort of playing a game with them. Right. Um, you know, if, you know, Agatha Christie like was in direct communication with her readers and laying out breadcrumbs for the readers and the readers would have the chance to sort of solve the mystery, to sort of solve the game before they got to the end. And I think that was probably a lot of the fun for people. Right. In fact, I think back like in the you know early 20th century, there was this idea that like mystery writers should, you know, there were like these rules that you should follow in order to make sure that, that your, your readers have a chance to figure things out. Right. And so I like, I've always liked the idea of like looking at the mystery as as a sort of game, right? And it's not just because the very first mystery book I ever read was The Westing Game, <laughs> uh, which is oh, a fabulous book. I love that yeah. book. Um, but, but yeah, so I think that that game aspect is a really interesting part of it, like that there's more than just a passive reading of a story going on or watching of a show. There's like this more interactive bit. I do think, however, that that sort of basic setup of you trying to figure out someone else's story, someone else's mystery. I think that's where we run into some problems when it comes to the tabletop role-playing game medium, for sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think um, Agatha Christie was was known for... I mean, I, I think I remember her saying that she would do the first draft of one of her books almost never knowing who the killer was. Right. She would then figure it out and go back and in the second draft, like, Insert leave some all clues. The stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. And then the way that... Um, Conan Doyle would write Sherlock Holmes, especially in in almost all of those stories, there was no expectation that the reader would be able to figure it out before Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, so the, yeah. the clues were there, but it, you know, you're not figuring it out. He's right, smarter. Yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah. So we've seen a lot of investigative and mystery role-playing games. And definitely Brindlewood Bay has a very different take on, on what that means. So before Brindlewood Bay, what role-playing games were you playing that were sort of mystery-based that you thought, like, maybe this isn't exactly the way you want to experience this yeah uh well i wasn't actively playing many of them because i didn't like them um i i am not a fan of how call of cthulhu for example which i think is the sort of like prime you know like big example here mm-hmm. i don't care for how that system handles mysteries um i think gumshoe was an improvement but still has a lot of shortcomings i think that this was actually something that really uh, pushed me to create uh, initially a game called The Between, which we might talk about, and then eventually mm-hmm. Brindlewood Bay. And because I um, I love the idea of doing mysteries in a role-playing game medium in that, in that context, I just didn't really care for like what these existing systems were doing, right? And so I just think over time, I started to sort of like inject mystery into the other things I was running where mystery wasn't the focus. And sort of coming up with this almost like um, this like loose play test of an idea of like what a mystery game should be. Right. And so all the games I ran, even if they weren't like straight down the line, mystery games had like strong mystery elements. And I was writing mechanics or procedures in order to support that. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that role-playing games have not typically traditionally handled the mystery genre well because of, well, so like what I said earlier, like, you know, when you're a passive participant, like, you know, the reader of a a book or, you know, or a semi-passive recipient, reader of a book, watcher of a TV show, especially, you're just sort of like trying to figure out someone else's story. But in a role-playing game, you are theoretically making up your own story, right? That's sort of the idea of what's where we're all together, right? Is to make a story mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And that I that sort of clash between the goals of role-playing games and the goals of like mystery creators is where a lot of the issues would always come up for me. So it, it basically leads to like problems, like at the table, you know, you have this problem of you have to go to the right place and search in the right place and find the right clue in order for your story to keep going. Right. And so you are very much at the, um, at the mercy of the creator of the scenario, or you are kind of at the mercy of mechanics that are inhibiting your, your play, inhibiting how you want to create the story, inhibiting how you want to do the investigation. Right. Um, You have the problem of in order for, this puzzle to be effective in order for it to work at the table. So you don't run into lots of problems. You have to do lots of heavy prep beforehand, right? So the GM has to spend a lot of time like prepping the session or, um, or the writer of the scenario has to be very like intricate and detailed with it. Right. And um, so those are just like a couple of the problems that I identified that I didn't care for in mystery role-playing games. And I think that that the sort of genesis of those problems is in just the basic mishmash of you know, in a role-playing game, we're creating our own story, but in a mystery role-playing game, we're really, really like subject to the creator of the scenario or the game and what they want to do. Right. And so I just think that clash is, is kind of a problem. Right. So it sounds like maybe, would you say that you're not the biggest fan of, of uh pre-written modules or scenarios because they're coming with a specific, like outside of the games that you're describing now, Brindlewood Bay and, and between. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when someone says, here is a, a defined Call of Cthulhu scenario, 
and you walk into this room and unless you do this thing, the bed throws you out the window, then um, that sounds like maybe that's not your preferred style. It's not. No, I mean, I I don't care to do that. I mean, I've, I've played games of Call of Cthulhu, for example, where the scenario is so structured and has so much, um, you know, go to point A, then to point B in order to get to point Z. Right. And, and you have to like follow that order. It has so much of that. And I've been in, I've been in sessions where we as players are just not able to figure it out. And so we're just kind of stuck, you know, or we went to the wrong place and the GM for whatever reason, either because they are being very, very, you know, like uh, sticklers about the scenario structure, or they just don't know how to handle the situation, never get us back on track, right? And so the gameplay just sort of slows down, right? Um, this was a major, major problem for me when it comes to mystery games. And I I wanted to tackle them in Brindlewood Bay and in the between, right? I really wanted to like find a different way of doing it because I love the idea of solving mysteries and role-playing games. Um, and I like the idea of that being the focus of the game, but I just didn't care for what I was saying. Right. So then what did you do? So you said you, uh, anyone who's followed, you knows that the, the between starting to work on the between came, came first yeah. before Brindlewood Bay, though Brindlewood Bay was published first. Right. So then what was your approach to mystery with these games as compared to you must find the clue in the desk or there yeah. is no clue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, I mean, I think that, so I'll backtrack a little bit before, because even before the between, there was like a really kind of key part of my sort of thinking on this, right, that happened, which is I was really, really, really deep into this game called Cthulhu Dark and Cthulhu Dark by Graham Walmsley. Um, at that time, I was not playing the sort of second edition hardcover one that came out on Kickstarter. Um, I was just playing the sort of freebie version that was available on the internet, right? And what I loved about Cthulhu Dark, it's a Cthulhu mythos sort of system more than a game because it doesn't have any setting material. It's just the, the rules for how to play. You're supposed to take it and play other uh, established scenarios with it. But what I liked about it is it had, it had this very, very like kind of uh, very close to freeform feel, right? Like we're just rolling dice and we're kind of looking at the result of the dice and then we're sort of freeforming our story to figure out like where it's going. And that's just how I like to play and as a general matter, I just prefer this more like looser, more collaborative style of storytelling in a role-playing game. And so straight away, that already appealed to me more than Call of Cthulhu, which is quite mechanics heavy, right? Um, but then Graham published this little um, this little like add-on thing called, I think it was called like Dark Descent or something like that. It was a little supplement for uh, Cthulhu Dark, which I think he's actually like disowned at this point, but I really love it because what it does is it creates this structure for how the classic Cthulhu mythos mystery should go. Like you should first encounter this type of thing. And then as you go deeper into the mystery, you should encounter this type of thing. And at the end, there should be a monster that destroys you or you go mad. Right. Yeah. And what was great about that is you, he has this structure and then within that structure, you would have lists of clues, but these clues are free floating clues. And so no matter where your investigators looking, they can get the clues needed to uh, unlock the next layer of the mystery. Right. And it was, it was really like the starting point for me thinking about how I wanted my mystery system to go. So that was a really, really important, like little sort of like, developmental thing that happened with me right um ultimately what i settled on for the for the between and brindlewood bay is this idea that um 
the clues should be able to be found wherever the characters are looking. Because wherever the players decide to look, however they decide to look, is them communicating to you how they want the story to go, right? So we're already sort of like crossing a bridge in terms of like, you know, this gap between the story we create and the story that the mystery writer creates, right? So straight away, we are sort of... um, we're starting to cross that gap because it's like now we're saying, okay, well, this is how we want to investigate and we should be rewarded for that. This is the way we want to do it. Right. And so the, you know, so my mystery system really kind of boils down to, you have these, a list of clues, right? They're flexible. They can be used wherever. And the characters, uh, wherever they're searching, they have a chance to finding a, finding a clue of some sort. And then importantly, the GM does not know the solution to the mystery. There is no canonical solution to the mystery. And so the solution to the mystery is whatever the players make of it. They take their clues and they have a discussion at the table about what they think is happening in the story. And then they roll some dice to see if they're correct. And then things happen based on how the dice roll goes. But, but what I love about this process and the way, and the way this system works is that that feels like you're solving a mystery, right? That it, it, it is you are you are creating your own story. You are solving a mystery, but it's a mystery without a canonical solution. It's a mystery that, it, it, like all role playing game stories, there is there's really nothing there before we sit down to play, right? It's whatever we do at the table is what is the truth, right? And so this is almost like a way of 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 sort of really like in in sort of really like grabbing the medium of role-playing games and letting the power of the medium inform what happens at the table. And in this case, it's, it's the power of collaborative storytelling. It's the power of, um, of, you know, you have to sort of like in all role-playing games, you have to sort of engage in a certain suspension of disbelief, right? Because, mm-hmm. because the things we're talking about are silly and ridiculous, right? But we, but we treat them seriously, right? This is the same thing. The players know there's no canonical solution to the mystery. They know that, but when they're talking about the solution to the mystery, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like they're solving a mystery, right? And, um, and so that's, that's essentially how it goes, right? Is there are no canonical solutions. Um, the scenarios are quite light. They just have big thematic details and key characters and locations to help the GM out. We call the keepers, what we call them. And, um, and ultimately, the clues can be found anywhere. And when the players are ready, they can gather those clues and... Uh, and try to come up with a solution to what, who, who did the murder or who, or where the, where the vampire is and the between say or whatever. So. Yeah. I think uh, maybe coming from a playwriting background and thinking about a mystery, it is, it's what you're talking about. Like the initial approach is I have to know the answer. I have to write the answer in the story. The audience mm-hmm. receives the story. And then when I start writing my own campaigns, my own adventures for role-playing games, I approach it with that same philosophy. It's like, I have to know the answer to this. And I think that's maybe a big dividing line still within this, this hobby is that how how in charge is the GM? Like how much Mm -hmm. do they need to know? And when I first started hearing about Brindlewood Bay and like getting into it, it's like, Oh really? But then if no one knows the answer, then how, and then you play it the first time and you're like, Oh, it's a different kind of puzzle. Right. It's like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that I don't know the answer at the beginning even though, you know, all, all my tradition of writing is what I mean, I don't know the answer to yeah, my own yeah. story, but it's, it's pretty fascinating. And now we're at a place in Roll to Metal where it feels like something has changed because we're now four mysteries in mm-hmm. and the void clues are becoming a little more of an issue. Uh-huh. And it feels almost like 
the tone and the style of each individual mystery is beginning to open up and the world is growing. Yeah. What have you found as you've played through campaigns of Brindlewood Bay? Like what is, what are these changes that we're starting to see? Yeah. So now I'll kind of back up a little bit. I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you know where Brindlewood Bay is, but in case you don't, Mm. it is a listeners that is, I know, you know, Jonah, um, (laughs) Uh, in case you don't, listeners, it, it's it's a game about elderly women in a, a quaint seaside New England town uh, who are solving murder mysteries. It's directly inspired by Murder, She Wrote and other cozy um, uh, crime dramas and things like that. Um, however, the one thing it does do that is that takes it out of the realm of just straight cozy mystery is all of these murders are connected in some way. Um, to this occult conspiracy happening in the background, right? Or theoretically they're connected. In any case, there's this occult conspiracy going on in the background. And this occult conspiracy is uh, uh, this, this group of sort of um, uh, sort of like Hellenistic, they're like a Hellenistic mystery cult trying to raise a, 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 a God, a, a child of Persephone, a monster from the, from the ocean in order to take over the world or destroy the world. Um, very apocalyptic, right? And so, to, to answer your question, this, this flip is supposed to happen at a certain point, right? Like you are sort of, you're in the realm of the cozy in the beginning, you are doing this sort of murder mysteries in the beginning, but every now and then via this mechanic called the void clue, you get a little glimpse into there's something else going on in this story. Yes. We're finding, you know, motives for who might have done this murder we found a pile of receipts for extravagant purchases we learned that this person was cutting this person out of the will or whatever but also we we were looking around and oh there was like this weird purple goo and that purple goo did it move i don't it, you know like like or 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 this character has a tattoo and I'm pretty sure that tattoo just spoke to me. Like you start to get these like little glimpses into like the supernatural, right. That is sort of the backdrop of the game because the game is ultimately a horror game, right? It's a mystery game. It starts as a mystery game, but becomes a horror game. And, and that flip does happen at a certain point. It's timed to happen a certain way because basically the more void clues you find they're they're like a timer, the more void clues you find, the, the, the more, Um, the deeper you get into this sort of occult conspiracy. And so different things start to happen in the story. And um, yeah. And so for me, yeah, that switch does happen. It kind of depends. Um, Sometimes it happens a little earlier, especially if the players are really invested in this, uh, this one particular uh, mechanic called the occult move where they want to create like a a new occult thing. The mavens can do that. We the characters are called the murder mavens. Um, so like if and and engaging with that move that it kind of allows them to proactively get into the deeper like more supernatural aspects of the game and so that can speed up that part of it actually um but some groups are less inclined to do that and so the the occult stuff happens a little bit more mid game right and uh but yeah that's uh there is sort of a there is sort of a switch that kind of takes place and um and actually the sort of the sort of balancing the cozy with the creepy is a really like key idea in the game. And 
sometimes it even feels a little like, um, what the right word is, sometimes it feels a little like almost like contrived, but that's kind of the idea as well, because the, the game is very much supposed to be like a TV show, right? It's like this TV show where like, not everything has to make a lot of sense, right? Like sometimes TV shows go in different directions or they, they switch writers or they, they don't have the budget to make everything super coherent or whatever. Right. And so that's another kind of like sort of meta aspect of the story. But, uh, but yeah, the, 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 the the sort of like the switch to the creepy is is a fun part of the game it's fun when it starts to happen yeah so i haven't my my head has been in brindlewood bay uh i guess uh has does the between have a, a distinctly different approach to it or is it sort of like a pretty close but refining some ideas or yeah or? um so the between is a game about um, it's a gothic horror game about monster hunters in Victorian era London. They are all, they're this group of people that live in this mansion called Hargrave House, and they learn about monstrous threats, both literal monsters and like serial killers and stuff like that in London, and they have to stop them, right? Um, and the game is inspired by Penny Dreadful. Um, and it's, I actually started the development of that game first um, because I essentially wanted to make the Penny Dreadful role-playing game, right? And so I, I started on that game first, but then I ran into this problem where I knew I wanted mystery to be a focus of what the characters do, but I didn't quite have the, um, I didn't quite have the mechanics of the mystery sorted out. And I didn't really, um, I didn't quite yet understand how to make other keepers or other GMs run the game in the way that I run it. Like I didn't really know how to like make them understand my headspace to make, to make this, to make it effective to play. Right. Mm -hmm. And so rather than, um, rather than like reinventing the wheel each time I wanted to try out something, I wrote Brindlewood Bay at almost as a, um, like a sketch, uh, to try out a mystery system to see if it would work for the between. Now Brindlewood Bay took on a life of its own, which is awesome. But the real differences between the two games though, like once I knew that, once I knew how my mystery system worked from Brindlewood Bay, I then was able to tweak it and expand it to make to make it function in the game of the between the way I wanted it to function. Right. So the the way the the between's approach is a little more expansive and a little bit more um, intricate, um, because essentially the the mysteries can be all sorts of things, not just murders. Right. And so, for example in the various, the very first, uh, scenario, we call them threats. And the first threat that most people are going to play the St. James's street ghost, you are, you're aware of this haunting in this particular house and you are the thing you're investigating. The mystery you're trying to figure out is ultimately how do we how do we get this ghost to pass on to the next world? Like, how do we get them to like be done with the mortal coil and go, right? <laughs> it's like, how, mm. do we, how do we quiet them in the, in the sort of jargon of the game? And, and so what you're investigating, the clues you're finding are all things that are suggestive of the history or the trauma of the person who died. Right. And, and that's why they're a ghost. And 
but it works just like it does in Brindlewood Bay. You have the list of clues. It's very, they're very flexible clues. You can find the clues wherever you look. The, the main difference is you just, the question you're answering is just not who did the murder. You, it, the question is how do we get the ghost to move on? Right? right. And, and so what the between does in order to support all these various types of mysteries is it has this structure called questions and opportunities. So the question might be, how do we get the ghost to move on to the next world? And the op- and once you answer the question, it unlocks an opportunity. And the opportunity would be perform a ritual to get the ghost to move on to the next world, right? right. And and so in other in other threats, you have um, sometimes you have threshold questions that you have to answer before you can try to before you can try to like get rid of the monster, right? And so in another threat called the Limehouse Lurker. Hargrave House knows that the perpetrator is a vampire. They know what vampires are, but and they know that this vampire in particular is in the body of a child, like a small child. What they don't know is whether the vampire is actually a child or if the vampire is an, an elder, like ancient vampire, just in the body of a child, right? And so they have to answer that question first because they have to answer the question, is, is the vampire actually young or is it old because that has a bearing on how they go about stopping the vampire so you would answer that question and the opportunity then unlocks the next question and so the next question might be you know if it's an old vampire um you know i don't remember exactly how it is in the game but it's something like you know how does the uh uh how how can we get the vampire to you know be done with whatever he's doing or if it's a young vampire vampire i think you're supposed to answer a question the question is like what was the child's home life like? And that opens up the opportunity to recreate the home life, to lure the vampire in. Mm. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, so like in a lot of ways, the entire game of Brindlewood Bay, the question is who did the murder and the opportunity is um, to catch the killer. Right. Like, like right. that's the kind of, you know, it, it's almost like a very, very focused um, version of what the between would, would become. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. No, I like that. I think just as what we were talking about before, sometimes this kind of switch might take a keeper or your GM and like make you think about things in a different way. I think there's also an effect on players too, who are used to like, well, there's one tunnel and there's one room at the end. And then from my perspective, being able to watch players like understand like, oh, it's kind of however I want to do it and not that there's one even in in playing a different game recently um there were some players that were very much like well what is the solution and and yeah. i just like <laughs> right what do you think the solution think is, the solution is? <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it is i mean it's um I, and 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 in defense of those players i guess like th- this is a new way of doing it right like right. i mean there have been other story games that have that are that have some of these ideas, right? Um, they're starting to sort of like push towards what, you know, what the Brindlewood Bay ultimately achieves, I think. Um, but it's a new way of doing it because it's not just saying, you know, tell me what your character's doing. Uh, the game also asks you to talk about the world, right? And help inform the world, right? And it truly is a collaborative process and that's the that's the goal, right? Um, I, I just, I always love the, I love the collaborative quality of role-playing games. Um, and I like, which is why I don't like more traditional role-playing games where the GM sort of dispenses everything to the players. And I also like the idea of possibilities, right? Like to me, that is, 
the excitement and the fun of a role-playing game. It's, it's like, yeah, we may have this structure that is the scenario we're playing, but there should be like the chance of things happening that no one anticipated happening. There should be the opportunity to go and push into places that the writer of the scenario did not anticipate. Right. I remember the very, very first role-playing game I ever played was Marvel superheroes. It was, I was in the fourth grade and I had no idea what a role-playing game was, but an older kid came over and showed me how to play it because I had it. And I distinctly recall this character I was playing, I was a villain of some sort, and I was breaking into a jewelry store to steal jewelry because that seemed like something that a villain should do. Mm-hmm. And and I remember the person who was running the game for me, he said, you know, he kind of presented the jewelry store and kind of what I saw. And then he said, he said, those magic words. He said, what do you do? And I remember thinking, what do you mean? What do I do? And he was like, what do you do? And I was like, and I started looking at my little character sheet with all these numbers and all this stuff and trying to figure it out. And he was like, no, just like, what do you do? And I, it was like a switch that flipped in my brain. I mean, a switch that has stayed flipped in my brain, right? All these years, because it, it just suggested possibility, right? I remember being very invigorated by the idea that I get to do what I want to do, right? I get to decide. And, um, And that's the power of the medium. That's the power of the medium that takes it beyond video games, say. Like video games have interactivity. They have huge production values. They have lots of cinematic qualities and lots of like, and then the gameplay might be fun, but what they can never do is have that open-ended possibility, you know, of like, of because you're still, even in the most like sort of, um, like sort of even the video games that have really tried to like kind of make it like a role-playing game you you'll never quite get this sort of like infinite possibilities right like just not gonna be the thing that happens that's the power of the of the medium and i think when i was writing brindlewood bay i really wanted to tap into the power of the medium and make the medium uh sort of work hand in hand with what i was trying to accomplish with the genre right Mm -hmm. yeah uh and conversations like this are happening on the gauntlet all the time <laughs> yeah it's our it's our thing <laughs> yeah well uh we've thank you very much for coming on is there any any final thoughts where can people follow you online yeah um so i am on twitter uh it's jason cordova six all one word uh we also i also recommend following uh just the gauntlet's twitter account i don't run that account but um but they're always tweeting about these games that we are so invested in these more indie uh, role-playing games that is at gauntlet rpg and we have a website as well gauntlet-rpg.com yeah and there's a lot of great stuff on there just new games that maybe listeners might not have come across before and lots of conversations like this about uh about the possibility of this hobby really yeah exactly well thank you so much i really appreciate your time hey thanks so much for having me on this is great fun 